Welcome to today's webinar compiled and produced by the team at biznews.com. All of our webinars are interactive. We encourage you to pose questions to our guests. The more challenging, the better. And the earlier you get the questions in, the better the chance of having them answered. The recording of this webinar will be available later today on the biznews.com channel on YouTube. Yeah, uh, indeed, there it is. I'm Alec Hogg, as always, on a Monday for the Rational Radio <laughs> webinar, although we've got a slight adjustment, as you can see on the screen there. This is not a CEO-only focused webinar, although we do have a CEO of a JSC-listed company, Peter Armitage, who will be in focus for the first 15 or so minutes. We are also today going to be having a look at the two big stories that are going around that do affect investments in South Africa. The first one is COVID-19. We heard the president uh, last week opening up new areas. Uh, one of his uh, strongest critics has been the organization that called itself Panda. And we'll have Nick Hudson from Panda, who will be on the program a little later. And then the almost seismic move that we saw in the fight against corruption with the arrest warrant issued for the ANC's most senior official, uh, Ace Magashule, gives us an opportunity to bring Paul O'Sullivan, uh, Ace Forensic uh, Investigator, into the conversation. And Paul will then be bringing us up to date on how the fight against corruption has been going, how he sees it. He's had a, a few breakthroughs of his own recently. So lots to talk about and lots that you can ask questions about. But uh, my colleague, our General Manager here at Biz News, Stuart Lohman, as always, uh, is riding shotgun and uh, has all the information about how the tech works. Stu, do you want to make sure that everyone can actually hear us? Excellent. Thanks, Oak, and welcome, Peter. Um, just quickly, those new to the webinars, there's a little control panel on the right-hand side. If you can hear my voice, see Alec and Peter in a presentation on screen, can you just give us a high five? There's a little high five option on that control panel. Uh, there we go, Alec. Yes, I've got some coming through. That's lovely to see. Um, if the sound is a bit low, you please let Alec know. You can adjust it upwards if need be. Um, Alec also mentioned, mentioned the questions. There's a little questions drop down on that same control panel. Please put them in there and Alec can pass them on to the relevant guest. Alec, that's all good from our side, though. Thanks. Brilliant. Well, I have actually just boosted the sound a little to make sure that everybody can hear exactly what it's about. Peter Armitage is the chief executive and founder of the Anchor Group. Pete, we go back a long time, I was saying off air, um, the late David Cart, a colleague of both of ours, uh, I remember him telling me when you were still very, uh, well, we were both very young, I guess, uh, this is a this is a superstar, you got to watch him, uh, He, you worked with David in, in investor relations for a period of time, and then your entrepreneurial uh, spirit took over. And Anchor has been a, a huge success story, it wasn't the first entrepreneurial endeavor that you've had. Uh, but when one has a look back at 2011 to where it is today, 
before we talk about the decision to delist from the Johannesburg Stock Exchange, when you founded it back then, did you have uh, this in mind that it would grow to the degree that it has into the business that it is today? Alec, yeah, I mean, I didn't really start off with a with a giant vision in mind. Um, I realized that there was a space in the market for um, bespoke wealth management for um, you know high net worth individuals. And we created a platform and a brand and a way of doing business which which attracted both staff and clients. You know, importantly, our business is effectively a um, you know a room full of people with a brand wrapped around it. So it's all about the people. And a lot of people in big investment banks and big competitors, um, you know, chose to come and use our platform to to service their clients. So you know, I think realistically, when we started, I would have. By this stage, I would have wanted to have five or 10 billion rand under management. I think that would have been reasonable. Uh, but we also, we listed, we raised some capital. We also did some acquisitions. And today we're sitting with Anchor Capital, the business that we started with about 40, 45 billion rand of assets. And then we've acquired other businesses, which have added about another 20, 25. So we're sitting with, um, obviously changes day to day with the market, but around 65, 70 billion rand worth of assets. That's astonishing. So six times bigger than what you would have been happy with at the outset. Yeah, I guess so. Also, it, it might have been a little less stressful, you know, to have 20 staff rather than 250 gone on a listed journey. Um, lots of ups, lots of downs, but uh, I'm very happy with who landed up. Peter, was it a natural progression for you from being a top-rated analyst um, and working for, well, I suppose, the biggest names in South African investment uh, in the investment world to to branch off on your own in 2011. Yeah, Alec, as you know, you know my history. I, I left the industry when I was 30 to go and uh, uh, try an internet business. I've always had an entrepreneurial bent. Um, and, and I think, you know, sitting at big banks, you realize there's an opportunity to do something slightly differently. Um, so it was, uh, I guess, that in, you know, at Investic one day, I just decided I, I wanted to do it myself. And it wasn't it wasn't a difficult decision to make, and I think I didn't want to end my corporate career not having tried and succeeded um, with my own business. It was funny. I was talking to my wife about exactly that about uh, many people who don't follow their dreams, and it's that old hackney phrase of "I could have been a contender." Yeah. <laughs> it's the washed-up old boxer, but uh, it's wonderful to have to have given it a go, and you wonder. Uh, how many people are, are getting to the later stages of their lives or careers and, and kick themselves for not ever trying the entrepreneurial route? Well, uh, maybe um, maybe you can just uh, give us a, a, a little insight into what you would say to somebody who is in the same position that you're in um, nearly 10 years ago, thinking about starting their own business. I think I mean, my, my kind of core thought is you've got to be on the soccer field to score a goal. You know, so give it a go. I think the most important thing is the people that you, <coughs> sorry, the most important thing is the people that you associate with, the people that you employ, the people that you partner with. Um, yeah, that's that's everything in the business and making sure that <coughs> every single person fits in and the, the, the importance of culture, even, you know, even much more important than talent and ability to sell is, is everything. Um, and then secondly, the whole equity equation, you know, I think to remember that equity is forever and it's very, very easy in your early days to say, well, you have 5%, you have 10% and, you know, you kind of dish it out. 
um, to hold on to that jealousy, but at the same time to be generous and overly generous with the right people who are going to create value for you. Because, um, you, you know, you land up after five or ten years with, with an equity mix, which wouldn't be what it was if you'd started from scratch knowing what people added. So to put some very careful thoughts into it, into that and to, you know, to try and do it in a way where you take the financial stress out of doing it. Um, you know, we partnered very early. I got Ivan Clark from Grindrod as a kind of core investor, and I knew that I had access to as much capital as I needed. Um, because it's when people start up businesses, you must be able to put all your efforts and time into growing the business and doing the right things for the business, as opposed to scratching around for working capital. Is Ivan still involved? Uh, no, not on a day-to-day basis. He gave up. He was chairman of the business when we listed. The agreement was he would be chairman for, for a year after we listed. He then stood down. Um, but he, yeah, he's still a client of ours. I still have a nice lunch with him once a quarter. Um, interestingly, he 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 bought into the business um, in the early days. He sold about half of his shares two or three years after listing. And a year or two ago, he bought them all back. Um, so he's still sitting as one of our top 10 shareholders. Well, Peter, I can see why he bought them all back. When you have a look at this share price graph of Anchor, uh, going above 20 bucks a share, now around four rand a share, it tells the whole story, doesn't it? You've been on the stock market now for six years, and in the last, well, half of your life as a listed company, there's been little appreciation, even though yeah. you have been growing. As an as an outsider, as an analyst looking at this, what would you make of what the share price graph is telling us? Yeah, so I think the um, we did the calc the other day. So we listed at two rand a share, and for people who bought in at that listing date, um, if you take into account the dividends they've received over the period, there's been about a 24% compound return. Um, you know, so wow. that that rolls easily off the lips. You know, must remember we've paid out um, must be close to two rand of dividends since uh, since we started. So you know, for guys who invested and stuck with it from the early days, um, they, they've they've had an exceptional investment. But that certainly is almost offensive to people who bought in uh, you know kind of in the in in the tens and above. I think you know we listed a business which had a few million rand of bottom line earnings. Um, the market went crazy. Uh, the, the share went up um, 10 times from listing in, in the year or so, which is obviously completely detached from the reality of a business. Uh, and we grew fast. Um, we did we did follow that on with very nice earnings growth from kind of, um, you know, the, the three or four million rand pat to, to around 100 million rand of profit after tax if you go back to 2016. Um, and since then, it's been very hard going. So we've grown our asset base, but at the same time, the stock market's gone sideways. So the platform that we've operated on has been difficult. Um, you know, we were making a lot of money out of performance fees and brokerage in the early days. That's not the case at all anymore. So, you know, we've got a business which is making an annualized 80, 90 million in profit after tax, but the quality of those earnings are exceptionally, exceptionally better than they were in the early days. And we also made one um, bad strategic acquisition. We've done four or five acquisitions. Um, four of the five have been great. Um, but we bought into an emerging market hedge fund manager. And, you know, that contributed nicely to earnings going back into kind of 2015. Uh, but that, that fund had a, and, and, and business had a, a very unfortunate um, performance uh, experience. We decided to slow that, uh, to close that down. So that's that's the one kind of with the benefit of hindsight, the one strategic mistake that we made. 
Um, but yeah, so it, it got vastly overvalued. Um, we obviously now think, you know, the fact that we're delisting, we, we're very confident in the business and the cash flows that we can take on uh, going forward. Uh, and hence, you know, the the idea to offer shareholders, um, you know, we, we're borrowing money to buy shares back. This isn't about a private equity firm coming in and making an offer. This is about mm -hmm. management initiating um, a deal with the bank to give us capital to, to buy shares back. Um, but also importantly, we're giving people the opportunity to stay in, you know, so we, we're, not, we're not trying to take anybody's shares away who don't think it's a good enough price. And in fact, for people who stay in, I think there's, you know, an even better value creation potential than if we'd stay as a listed business, because the maths are borrowing money and buying. Sorry? No, why would that be? Sorry, and you're already, already preempting the yeah. answer to my question. Yeah, so, so I mean, we, we're borrowing um, 250 million Rand from, from RMB, um, which will mean there's 30% there's less shares in issue, roughly, obviously, depending on the take-up and if it goes through. And we'll pay that debt down over a fairly short time period. So, you know, the, the, there's, there's some very nice accretion on an earnings per share basis for, for shareholders who, who continue to participate in the journey. Mm -hmm. uh, Peter, the when people delist, uh, it's always a, a very difficult decision because you have family and friends who've been with you for a long time as well as. So this structure that you're putting together where you will enable them to remain as shareholders in the business, are they going to be able to trade the stock uh, during that period? Yeah, so it, it obviously does change the nature. Um, when you're listed, you can always put your shares on the market. Um, I think realistically, going into an unlisted business, the, the tradability changes dramatically. Um, I, I, I think a reasonable expectation is, you know, we've got to spend the first two years of this journey uh, paying down the debt that we're taking on. Um, but, the, but the intention is thereafter to create a facility where the company can continue to buy people's shares back. You know, so if, if, they, if they are a... a medium-term holder of the business and we're going to keep it anyway it doesn't really affect them you know if it was somebody if it's somebody who was intending to sell their shares in the next six months then it probably makes sense to take advantage of the liquidity now and you know liquidity at a at a, at a reasonable premium to what the share has been trading at over the last month or two mm. and then from your own perspective are you leading the or the borrowing of the 250 million so, yeah, I mean, the, the management and board of the company initiated it and organized it. So, yeah, I mean, the, 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 there isn't really an outside party leading it. Um, you know, the company itself is providing security for, for um, to go forward. And then Massimong, which is led by Mark Teke, is also putting more capital in um, in order to, with the objective of becoming 26% black owned, which enables us to, you know, proceed with our plan to become a level one um, operator in South Africa, which is really a necessity nowadays. Why so long to take this decision? In other so words, you've been, the share price has been, has been uh, bobbling along at this, this, this level now for s some years. Why now? What's the timing of the, uh, the decision? Or is there any any relevance to the timing of the decision? Why not last year or two years earlier? Yeah, I actually shout out staff. I mean, we've, we've enjoyed being listed. It's a, it's a, it's a nice place to be. It is, it, you know, it comes with um, some pretty onerous regulations and, and, and ways of operating and costs, but that's certainly not the reason that we're doing it. 
Um, I showed our staff on Friday an email that I sent to some of our directors in late in April, um, post-COVID, and, and getting confirmation of the resilience of the business. Where I said, you know, if those are the cash flow streams, um, the business can handle some debt to um, to buy back. So I think there's you know different stages of a corporate's life it makes sense to be listed. I think there's stages where um, it might make more sense to be delisted. Um, so it's it's a combination of performance of the business and the, the share price is 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 rash, it's rational for us to do the share price. I don't think I'd want to borrow money and pay too much more. And the third point is the price of money, Alec. Money is the cheapest it's been for many, many years. So we can borrow money at an after-tax rate in, you know, in the mid-single digits, um, which makes it very viable. So the combination of those three things made it, uh, we think, the logical thing to do. How high would the share price have to go to for you to decide, okay, uh, the market is now starting to appreciate us, maybe we won't delist after all? I mean, it's difficult to put a number on it. It's more about, you know, if the share price was five rand or north of five rand, um, you know, I think we'd be taking too much risk if we then had to borrow 350 million rand. You know, the business can handle that amount of debt, and that's how we got back to it. Um, but, but I think it's more about, I mean, the other factor that, you know, you asked about the conditions, I think, you know, the South African economy is likely to be in a tough place for, for quite some time. And I think the appetite to participate in the small cap segment of the market is going to be fairly limited for, for, for quite some time. Well, given that you're right in the middle of these kind of discussions for your own company and also um, your, your stock in trade is finding companies like yours that are undervalued, yeah. is the JSC full of them, full of similar type of situations of companies that uh, I, I know Magda Wizikcha, for instance, uh, when, when I interviewed her a while back was saying, uh, or not really, she couldn't really say much, but uh, watch this space on a delisting there as well. Uh, similar stories uh, elsewhere that, that that you found or that we should all be looking at? Yeah, so I think there's quite a few opportunities. I think there's there's a lot of pretty good businesses that you know are, are trading at kind of unappreciated multiples. I think Signia is a case in points. So I think she runs a great business, and I think that's you know that share offers quite some value. Um, we've been looking at Grinrod recently, which, um, you know, is probably worth double its share price. Um, you know, you're now getting into the kind of small cap segment of the market, something like Alviva, the old Pinnacle Holdings. You know, based on its earnings in 2019, it's on, it's on a 2P multiple. So if they can get anywhere near back to that over the course of the next two or three years, we'll double or triple your money. But people aren't prepared to take that bet and wait. So, you know, people are selling out of shares at, at you know, there's a lot of businesses where um, there's, there's no ways that they'll trade at um, those kind of multiples in the private market if there was a transaction between the companies. So, you know, there's a list of probably another 10 or 15 quality businesses which, um, which have got that type of equation. Peter, good luck with your endeavours. There's a lot of shareholders. You said just over 3,000 that uh, yeah. you have to get support from. Uh, how does what is the process from here? So it go, the circular the circular is out, um, and then there's a shareholder meeting on the 17th of December, and all the shareholders who are participating in in the transaction, um, like Masimong, for example, can't vote. So conflicted parties can't vote. So it's really, it's this is a proposal which shareholders have to approve. And 75% of those present at the meeting have to approve. Uh, and then, you know, it, I think it goes into early February. People will get paid their cash or move into the 
the unlisted company. Well, we look forward to talking to you in a different guise in future. Thanks for dropping a few of those pearls on the table. I think there are lots of people listening today who are going to think, hmm, okay, Grinrod, better go and do some work on that. Uh, also, uh, Pinnacle, what's it called now? It's Alviva. Alviva. Uh, another one, and uh, of course, with uh, with Anchor, with your shareholders having had a 24% compounded return, that's pretty good news. Um, no one who bought pre-listing can be uncomfortable, but uh, clearly those who got caught up in the hype in the first couple of years, uh, just learn the lesson. Don't don't get don't get sucked in, despite the uh, the opportunities that that appear to be there. Uh, good talking with you again, Peter, and uh, thanks again for coming on to Rational Radio today. Thanks, Eric. Welcome to today's webinar. Well, you are welcome in today's webinar. We've got Nick Hudson, who uh, is with us now. Nick, good to see you on the screen uh, again. Uh, looks like uh, you've have you have you done the lockdown uh, beard shaving off yet? I know in our various conversations. Not yet, Not yet, yet Alec. Uh, looking forward to the day. So, so that will be for you the day that lockdown is completely over, that we're back to normality in total. Completely over, and um, I think the next phase I will I'll give myself beardless for, uh, which is to make sure that it can never happen again. We've got uh, the opportunity for people to ask you questions. It's uh, very easy. There's a little question mark on the widget uh, on the control panel. Just click on that, type in the question, and Nick is here to answer. Uh, just by way of background, and I, I hope that uh, most of the business community have had the opportunity to listen to the Alec Hogg Show interview with you, because it, it really was fascinating uh, to get your insights, and, and it's always better when you have got, as we had uh, half an hour or so, to, to really talk in depth about the way things have developed. We've, we've seen the Great Barrington Declaration. Um, not everybody has actually read it or understands it properly. Uh, and we also, of course, know that Panda uh, is uh, an organization that you co-founded. Perhaps we can start with that. You're an actuary, you're in private equity. What is going on at Panda and, and what is Panda? So Panda is a, a, now an international organization, multidisciplinary think tank, focusing on coronavirus policy in general. And we're actually quite closely linked with the Great Barrington Declaration because the three original signatories of that document are all members of our advisory board, scientific advisory board. Um, the organization now has approximately 100 members, the majority scientists, uh, quite an international uh, slant to it, crossing all disciplines, immunology, vaccinology, epidemiology, and then more broadly, actuarial science econom economists, lawyers, uh, public health specialists, uh, communications experts, statisticians. It's a really a very diverse group and some top, top minds in the field. Uh, geneticists and so on who would be recognizable to anybody in the field as preeminent people in their fields. That's quite a coup to get the the guys who's, who put together the Great Barrington Declaration 
on your advisory board? Were they uh, were they just impressed by the work that Panda had done, or do you know them personally? We got to know them prior to the signing of the the Great Barrington Declaration online. So we had connected with uh, the the three of them. That's uh, Professors Gupta Bhattacharya and Kuldorf, as well as the other two members, uh, Professor Michael Levitt and uh, Professor Sucharit Bhakti from the University of Mainz. Um, prior, so prior to the, the signature, we were already in contact and uh, uh, we, we identified immediately that they were seeing the world the same way we were. And what is very interesting about those, uh, the, the, this cast of characters, is they pretty much independently came to their viewpoints and then found each other in a, in a similar fashion after listening to one another's YouTube videos and so on. All saying the same thing, all saying that this general lockdown approach has been a disaster, was predictably a disaster, um, that the right uh, and the obviously correct thing to do in the face of a, a virus that has massively graduated age-based mortality was to focus on protecting the vulnerable and allowing the non-vulnerable to get on with their daily lives under conditions of more or less complete normality. And that was a conclusion we had arrived to uh, at at Panda in May, in our first paper, it was the concluding paragraph. Um, but as it turns out, you know, these scientists came to exactly the same conclusion um, quite independently. In, in I, I would say, because they're experts in the field, they, they got to it faster than we did. They were there very quickly. Um, because it is really conventional uh, response to ep an epidemic. This, lock, this general lockdown story is completely unconventional and at odds with the science. It's a, it's, a, it's a messy, messy affair that should never have been attempted. Now, those are big names globally, including Professor yeah. Michael Levitt, who is a South African. Uh, he was born in this country and, and spent his early years here. And still, I think he still carries a South African passport. He still very much relates to it. But the other guys who are, on the, uh, are now on the Panda Advisory Board, these are not uh, people who necessarily would have a, a warm spot or feeling towards South Africa. Why is it that they are taking such an interest in your organization? Well, look, we, we what when we realized that the South African policy response had stopped being about the science and that we were getting no traction and the same errors were just being repeated time and time again, we realized it was just political and that it was being done with the air cover of the World Health Organization. And we realized that if we were going to have an impact and do the things that we thought were right to do, we would need to take our efforts international. And so we started looking around for similar organizations to Panda. Um, and whilst we came across many groupings of say doctors or economists or, or whatever, there really wasn't anybody with the same diverse skill set, the, the ability to marshal all of the international data um, and to, to do the kind of studies that we were doing. So we abandoned the approach of trying to join somebody else and just decided to expand our story internationally. And I think they saw the same thing. They saw in, in our uh, organization the ability to marshal uh, skills from multiple disciplines to cover all the international data and to, to be a home for all these scientists who have from the word go rejected the policies that have been undertaken but found no home even in their own institutions. And so it's been it's been a great experience for us. They're they're wonderful people. I, I would encourage your uh, your listeners to 
have a listen to the interviews that we're rolling out of each of them. You know, I, I had the, the rare privilege of uh, spending nearly an hour interviewing uh, Professor Sunetra Gupta. And I've got to tell you, it was one of the best hours of my life. I absolutely loved every minute of it. She's wonderful. Um, and uh, yeah, there will be more of those um, because it's important, I think, for people to understand the human dimension. With all the names being thrown around, you know, granny killers, et cetera, et cetera, it's really important to, to meet people and to see that that's not what they're about. It's an, it's an awful slur to cast in the direction of a person who's in public health and who's making legitimate arguments that are cons consistent with all the prior science to, to call them names like that. And actually quite disgraceful, if you ask me. There are a few questions here. The first one is from Chaman, uh, who says, you predicted 10,000 deaths originally, but you were 100% wrong. Can you explain why? Well, we predicted 10,000 deaths at the time that the, the South African Coronavirus Modeling Consortium and the NICD were predicting 351,000 deaths. And whether it's 10 or 20 does not matter. The point is that this response was completely overwrought. Um, so, you know, we've, we've had our model, our model up on our website in public domain for many months now. I think our May uh, model was, which was the, the first time we kind of departed from um, that initial rough estimate of 10,000 and started putting out an explicit curve in the public domain, is now tracking within half a percent error. You know, and, and what month are we in? Seven months later. So, no, I mean... I'm not going to take that uh, that kind of uh, criticism lying down. The predictions we've made, the errors that we pointed out in the government's models and the actuarial society's models um, have all been proven with the passing of time to have been spot on. They were overestimating the fatality rates. They were uh, overestimating the susceptibility of the population to the disease. They were getting the timing of the peaks wrong. Um, they, they, you know, they were missing the seasonality story. We, we were correcting all of those things. Just as time has gone by, um, the, the detail has been filled in. So we know now why people are not all susceptible to this disease. It's because there is both T cell and B cell uh, uh, cross-reactivity, prior immunity from prior coronavirus infections. So the, the actual detailed mechanisms of, the, of uh, the observations we were making are now being filled in. Um, and you can go and look at our website. That original forecast is up there. And you can tell me whether you think that that was a bad job. Cecil says, uh, you have not been in favor of lockdown in South Africa. However, what is your attitude to lockdowns happening in Europe? It's, it's, it's an absolute mess there. <laughs> there Alec, what's happening is that they've got uh, the, the, the disease has gone into its seasonal endemic phase, along with all the other respiratory viruses that we've lived with for the entire duration of human history and then some. Uh, we could probably say mammalian history. Um, and what's happened is you, you're getting uh, the winter surge of respiratory viruses, but there are no excess deaths from coronavirus. In the UK, there are a few excess deaths, but they're, they're deaths at home and they're caused by basically lockdown conditions, by people being excluded from routine medical care and that kind of thing. So there's no, there's no uh, second wave. It's just now an endemic seasonal virus. And that they're locking down in response to this is one of the most ridiculous public health policies that's ever been seen in the world. What about uh, what's going on in the United States right now? There is a 
uh, I suppose, a fair amount of fear-mongering, if you want to put it that way, uh, a million uh, infections in the past month, and uh, it's spreading to areas that it wasn't at in the past. How are you reading this, particularly now that there's a new president coming into the United States who's made uh, COVID-19 his number one priority? Well, the seasonal, the seasonal uh, flux of the disease um, in the, the extreme latitudes in the, in, in, in the United States will see to it that the disease basically begins declining as he comes into power. So timing will be good for him. He can claim success whatever he does. I hope that he doesn't do any of the stupid things that European leaders are, leaders are doing. Unfortunately, he's showing every sign of doing it. He's going on about mask mandates and about lockdowns and about nationwide lockdowns. That would be deeply, deeply foolish. Uh, Bruce says, Professor Alan Whiteside stated in a Biz News interview that the Great Barrington signatories are a group of, quote, well-intentioned idiots. He'd love a comment from you. Yeah, there's nothing idiotic about uh, Levitt Cook, sorry, not a signatory of the primary document, about Gupta, Bhattacharya and Kuldorf. They are leading epidemiologists and their perspectives are being demonstrated to be correct. Yeah, this, this is the very frustrating thing. Um, there is absolutely no basis in epidemiology for general lockdowns in response to a graduated disease, just none. So we have a Professor Whitehouse says he needs to learn some manners. You can come and debate me if you'd like. We might just uh, set that up for you, Nick. Uh, why not? But Gerardus uh, says there are some rumbles that there's been under-reporting of COVID cases in South Africa. Of COVID cases, definitely. I mean, but there are a couple of things in that, um, uh, uh, Alec. The, the first thing is that cases are always a big underestimate of um, of actual infections. And, you know, we know from whenever a serology test is done, a seroprevalence study, that the number of uh, people who actually had an antibody response massively exceeds the number of official cases in any country in the world. Um, but in, a, in a, a cases, the official cases stories are also to some extent an overestimate of clinical cases because there are lots of asymptomatic people who are recorded. You have to distinguish between a person who has, a, who has the disease and a person who has the infection. And cases conventionally would be restricted to people who have the disease. But for some reason or other, we have departed from normal epidemiological standards and we are including in our official cases numbers both those people who get sick and those people who don't. And it's all under the guise of this very shaky story of asymptomatic transmission in some kind of exceptional fashion with COVID. Uh, which we don't see as really being the case, you know. Um, that's a bit of uh, malarkey that set this whole thing into a very dangerous spin in the first place. So I hope that second last, the question. I'm sure it does. The second last question for you, Nick, from Gerard. He says, there is such a radical divide between the panda and prevailing, e.g. CNN view. Can you speculate mm. on the long-term implications of this? Yes, I think many organizations are going to be off, going to find themselves on the back foot. This, this policy has been a disaster. Um, the mortality that flows from lockdown will exceed the mortality that flowed from the coronavirus in its, in, in, you know, on a global basis by some huge multiple, maybe 100. Uh, this is going to turn out to have been almost a genocidal uh, policy response. 
in fact, scratch the word almost, it's genocidal. Um, and that will flow through in the fullness of time. When you, an alien visiting this planet right now, looking at excess mortality for the world, would conclude that there was nothing going on. But when he looks in two years' time, you will see that there's a lot going on. Um, we have savaged economies, destroyed people's livelihoods, cast people into poverty, um, and all of that has mortality consequences. We've missed cancer screenings. Any number of causes of death will rise by more than the total cause of death, the total numbers of deaths from coronavirus. It's been a global catastrophe. But the implications of this, the long-term implications, um, yeah. what are you seeing uh, coming or flowing from, from this when you talk about uh, a total catastrophe? Someone surely has to be responsible or, or, or take accountability. Yeah. Yes, I, I think it's going to come one way or another, um, and, and it, should, it should come. It's not right that this kind of travesty should be unleashed on such a scale. Um, it's not right that the, the views of scientists who, that were consistent with the pre-coronavirus science have been suppressed in such a severe way and ignored by organizations such as the World Health Organization. Um, any number of governments are on the, on the back foot here now. And there, there, will, there will be change and there will be consequences. And we will make sure that we are part of driving that. Final question uh, comes from Chairman, just to follow up. He says, what does Nick think of the Trump response to the virus? Well, the Trump response in many ways was a non-response. I like to say that Trump is, you know, with respect to the coronavirus, he was like a stopped clock, you know, right, right twice a day by, by complete accident. Um, but a non-response was much better than a, a general lockdown. What he did, if, in, in essence, was leave it up to the states to determine their own response, which is what happened in the European Union. Each, each member state of the European Union uh, had its own response. So, I mean, it's, it's not, you know, some kind of crime to do that. Um, you know, was, were there things in the federal response that, that could have been done better and should have been done better? No doubt. But that's probably also true for all countries of the world. So I wouldn't regard Trump's response as having been uh, in, in, uh, particularly harmful. Um, US mortality is no worse than European mortality. And I think the, the, the Democrats used this uh, narrative very well to uh, score uh, political points. And I think, you know, if you look at, uh, it, it, don't listen to Trump, listen to Scott Atlas. There's a man with common sense. Um, and don't listen to Fauci. Fauci has been a complete lunatic in this whole thing. Um, even contradicting his own papers that he wrote in March, you know. So it's just, you know, entirely political. Science has been abandoned. There's no rhyme or reason in, in, uh, in what most nations have done. Nick Hudson, thank you for coming on to Rational Radio and for once again sharing your views and your thoughts uh, with the business community, outspoken, focused, uh, as per always. It's, it's always really, really good to, to get your insights. Thanks, Nick. Look forward to the next Thanks, time. Sir. Yep. Bye bye. Thank you. Well, the uh, um, someone that you can also know is guaranteed to give you uh, the story as it comes straight without any embellishments is Paul O'Sullivan. Hi, Paul. I uh, hope I got you on the line now. Yep. Loud and clear. Alec, how are you doing? Very well indeed, and uh, and excellent to be talking with you again. Um, just from a a broad perspective. We saw this extraordinary decision uh, by the National Prosecuting Authority to 
arrest or issue a warrant of arrest for the most senior person in the ruling political party, Ace Magashule. I'm not sure if you saw the videos that have been circulating on WhatsApp and uh, social media generally, but he doesn't seem terribly concerned. In fact, he had a few of his uh, pals at, in the courthouse, uh, even singing and, and shouting Viva for him. Yeah. Do we need to be concerned that this has been the reaction? Well, I don't think so. Um, you know, I think we're going to get all this sort of carry on. What What's needed now is a state of law and order. We need to have the rule of law being applied in South Africa. Um, he's out on bail. So if he starts stirring the pot and arranging for people to go toy-toying at his court cases and stuff, they should withdraw his bail and keep him in, in, in prison behind bars where he can't uh, being involved in any any further um, unrest because it's clear that what he's doing will lead to unrest. And there's there's plenty of um, cases, previous historical cases, where um, there's a legal justification for withdrawing bail. Um, and I would have no hesitation at his next appearance and telling him, listen, yeah, you come with any more of these people to court, we're going to withdraw your bail and don't tell us that you didn't arrange it because uh, that's not acceptable so you tell your supporters that if you if if they want to see you sitting in jail waiting for trial then they must come toy toying outside the court well you've always taken a more optimistic view than most in our country about the transition to a more normal society uh, i i recall you suggesting that there were going to be some arrests and they duly now we have seen them are we at that point of inflection? Are we at a watershed now in the fight against corruption? No. Um, we've still got a lot more to do, and we're busy doing it. Um, you know, every, every, every area has its role to play. I mean, I'll give you a classic example. We opened a case at Brooklyn Police Station. Um, Forensics for Justice did in September 2015, that's over five years ago now, against Lucky Montana. Now, uh, for those that have forgotten, Lucky Montana and his corrupt buddies swiped the best part of four billion rand from Praza. And, you know, no, not a single collar has been felt. And uh, it, it's an unacceptable state of affairs. And I've recently seen that Lucky Montana is going to attend the Zondo Commission to give his version of events. And his version of events is that I'm actually a criminal. Um, I, I'm, he, he's only facing these problems because of Paul O'Sullivan and, and because of a corrupt board at Praza. And he's talking about um, Popo Malefi. Now, <laughs> you know, if you cross your mind back, copies of our docket to the media, um, and I think they gave him a good hiding too. You also had a very good journalist um, at News 24, um, um, and he, he published what his findings were. Um, and then, of course, you had, following that, you had, after we opened our criminal docket, I put the Board of Praza on terms not to pay any more money to um, Siangana Technologies. They were about to pay them 300 million rand. I appointed lawyers and we launched an urgent application. 
the money wasn't paid, so we saved Praza 300 million rand there. And uh, Praza then had all the contracts set aside. And after they had the contracts set aside, uh, Praza, uh, Popo Malefi in particular, uh, he wrote to um, Clemenza, the unlawfully appointed corrupt head of the DPCI, and he put him on terms to take steps to uh, not only bring Lucky Montana and his accomplices to book, but also to start freezing some of the monies that have been stolen. Now, coincidentally, I wrote to Shamila Batoi over the weekend because um, this fellow, Norks Malela, was uh, suspended last week. And I said, you know, um, two and a half years ago, I wrote to Sean Abrahams and said to Sean Abrahams, why are the asset for feature unit not attaching the proceeds of crime that they know is out there? Mm-hmm. Now, to this date, not a single rand of all the money that's been swiped from Praza and Transnet. Uh, sorry, let's let's stick to Praza because some of the money from Transnet has been attached. But the money that Lucky Montana swiped together with his accomplices, not a single rand of it has been attached. And we're talking as, as a serious amount of money. So. And then you have this ridiculous situation where the erstwhile chairman of South African Airways, uh, Dudu Mayeni Zuma, comes and sits at the uh, Zondo Commission, and I lost, I lost count. I counted more than 100 times her saying, I won't answer that question in case I incriminate myself. Now, and then on day two, I think, of her giving evidence, she commits a criminal offence. She names, I think, three or four or five times, she names Mr. X. There were police officers sitting inside the Sondo Commission while this was going on. They watch her committing the offence. They should have put the handcuffs on her right there and then. So my approach is that we're being far too soft for these criminals. We're giving them far too much leeway. If they want to sit there and thumb their noses at the country by lying to the Sondo Commission under oath, which is what... Um, Mayeni's partner in crime, Yaki Kinani, did. Now, if they want to sit there and talk about uh, their knowledge of uh, economics, how you can buy something for 3 million and sell it for 9 million and not make a 6 million rand profit, if they want to do all that, they're thumbing their noses at the people and they should just be arrested. They should be criminally charged immediately. And I think we need to start taking a harsher line with these people. They took a harsh line with us, by the way. I was dragged off planes. My offices were raided multiple times. I had criminals trying to kill me at the behest of generals in the line. Um, they arrested, uh, what's his name, General Boyson. They arrested Clinton Breitenbeck. They arrested Robert McBride. They tried to arrest Pavan Gordon. You know, if they want to conduct themselves in that manner, we must actually be at least as harsh on them. And I think what I'd like to see uh, before Christmas is some of these people having the right act read to them. And if Mr. Eismagashuli wants to appear in court again with uh, 20,000 bust-in supporters in the street, the the magistrate needs to tell him, listen, if you bring supporters again, you're going to sit in breach of your bail conditions and lock him up. And I think that's what I want to start seeing now. Enough is enough. No more, Mr. Nice Guy. The country and the organizations, the state, now 
need to show that we can take a tough stance. Just to remind you that uh, Paula Sullivan is here also to answer your questions. And if you have a look at the little control panel, there's a question mark there. Click on that and put your questions forward and uh, I will pose them to Paul. Paul, just uh, from, a, from a global perspective, we've seen what has happened in Brazil and their Operation Car Wash took about three years before they had their first conviction. And now it's uh, their dozens of uh, politicians, including the former president, who are sitting in very long-term cells, uh, one of the richest people in the country, uh, 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 the owner of their largest, uh, South America's largest construction company, is also, I think he's in there for 19 years. Are you seeing the escalation in South Africa of the system now that we've had a few arrests beginning? No, so what my concern, um, Alec, we have a very good criminal justice system in South Africa that was captured years ago, um, probably in the region of 10 years ago, around the time of Celebi um, being, being sentenced. We had criminals and people with low ethics moving into senior positions in the National Prosecuting Authority. Ditto the, the police service machinery which is still not uncaptured and the problem you have is that it's impossible for um, for example Shamila Batawi and Godfrey Labaya uh, the respective heads of the NPA and the DPCI it's impossible for them to manage all these cases themselves so they've got to have quality people below them now in the case of uh, Shamila, she's got uh, this investigative unit which is starting to show its teeth and we're starting to get comfortable about some of the things that are happening there. But, you know, I don't think there's several hundred people in that unit. And the number of people that need to be prosecuted over here runs into the hundreds. We're not talking about a hundred people. We're not talking about, we're probably talking about five or six hundred people that need to be prosecuted. We've got dirty cops, dirty prosecutors. Some of these prosecutors are still sitting in their jobs and they're thumbing their noses. I've had to respond in the last six weeks to applications to cross-examine brought by the likes of Tory Pretorius, which if we listen to Abrahams, he's the buffoon that made a decision to prosecute Pravin Gordon. And then we've got Michael Mashuka, another advocate in the NPA, who took a decision to prosecute me and others, including Sarah Jane Trent, and issued false warrants of arrest without getting our version of events deliberately so that they could tie us up in legal knots and protect a corrupt chief of police. Now, these people have been bringing applications at the Sondo Commission for no other purpose than to have another swipe at us and accuse us of being the criminals and, and pleading that they're good people and they've done the right thing. So... Um, the time I've had to spend, and Sarah Jane, on preparing uh, responses to these criminals uh, is mind-blowing. I think we've probably both, in the last month, done 100 hours of work for the Sondo Commission. Now, what we need in South Africa, we can't just replicate what's happened in Brazil. They've got their own dynamics. We've got our own dynamics. We need to get to a position now where if you're going to drag the trial out, you can sit in jail instead of being running around on the streets stirring the pot. You know, 
uh, Jacob Zuma was charged more than 10 years ago. He still hasn't had his day in court. So while we've got criminals running this um, Stalingrad strategy, um, you know, I'm a Catholic, and we often hear the, the expression, you know, you're more Catholic than the Pope. Now, I think we've just been a little bit too soft with our um, latitude that we grant to people accused of criminal offences. No such latitudes were granted to me. I was dragged off a plane, I was tortured and detained for four days, and then they took all my passports and they wouldn't let me leave the country. I had to bring an application in court every time I wanted to visit my family overseas. And yet with these people, uh, the criminals that have been doing all this, we're letting them run rings around us. Uh, so I'm, I'm of the opinion that we now need to start taking a, um, what was it Francois Pinot said? No more Mr. Nice Guy. We need, we need to start being tough. Um, and if that means putting these people in jail without bail, we should do it. Peter wants to know, he says his opinion is that the judges are scared to exercise the law in fear of retribution on their lives. Your comment? Uh, no, I don't agree that's the case. Um, you know, I've seen some of these judges, um, and there's, you know, some of them are very thick-skinned. Um, I just look at the judge um, that sat, for example, on Radovan Kretcher. Now, Radovan Kretcher is <laughs> probably far more dangerous than Ace Makashuli or, um, you know, Jacob Zuma or any of them. This guy, I think... He, he, I've got a schedule of all the people he bumped off, and I think it's like 13 or 14 people in South Africa and half a dozen overseas. And that guy was a real nasty piece of work. He's sitting in jail now. We've not, we've not heard from him since. I doubt if we will hear much more from him now. Uh, he can't even make a phone call. He's, he's kept in a, a prison in, in KZN where cell phone signals don't work inside the prison. So... He's pretty much had his arms and legs cut off, and that's that's the last we hear of him. Now, um, that judge that sat on his trial had no hesitation whatsoever in in dealing with him every time he stepped out of line. And I think, you know, the High Court judges and the Supreme Court of Appeal judges, they've been doing it for a long time. They know what they're up against. But if there are security assessments carried out, and they decide that, that their life may be at risk, they can get protection. Uh, but I, I, I've yet to see a judge which would renege on his uh, constitutional duty because he feels his or her life is in danger. Well, Mokeng Mokeng certainly has uh, led the way in that regard, hasn't he, the Chief Justice? What about Shepherd Bushiri, that uh, preacher Ponzi scheme guy who jumped bail? Do you think that that might start influencing a, a harder approach now from the uh, criminal justice system that, as you've been saying, is a little soft? Well, I, you know, there's different horses for different courses. What you have to remember is that the Bashiris are not South African citizens. In fact, you know, depending on which version of events is, is correct, they may not even have the right to be in the country legally in the first place. Now, mm, on the other side of the coin, I don't know if anybody sat and watched that 28-minute video, um, but this gentleman lobbed some fairly harsh allegations at the investigating team that investigated him. Now, 
you know, obviously I have no knowledge who these people are or whether the allegations are true or not. Um, but it wouldn't be the first time in South Africa where cops have asked for money and if you don't pay, you get arrested. Um, in fact, it goes on on a daily, if not weekly, a weekly or daily basis in South Africa at the lower end of the, um, you know, the, the organization. So I don't know. I think it's completely different. I mean, most of the people that stand accused of, of state capture or corruption in, in, in the state capture arena, most of them are only having a South African passport. Um, the Guptas would be a notable um, exception. In fact, they illegally had South African passports. Um, so I think probably um, for the most part, most of the people wouldn't have anywhere to run. They'd have to stay put in South Africa. So I think the idea about being detained without bail is to make sure it's for two things or, or, or several things. First of all, it's to make sure that you do attend your trial. And that's the most important thing. And the second thing, which is equally important, is to make sure that you don't interfere with the investigation or interfere with witnesses. Now, I don't care what anybody says. For Ace Magashuli to stand at a microphone and claim what, 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 he's tacitly implying that if you're a witness against him, you're going to get it. So I think they just need to, you know, you've been charged, you're coming to court, you come to court quietly. The law gives you a right to bring your uh, legal counsel with you. They want you to sit without bail, they must also come. And then we'll cancel your bail and you can sit behind bars. They do that with one of these people. The rest of them will attend court quietly and stop grandstanding. Paul, uh, just to close off with, the way that things are progressing, are you comfortable, uh, apart from the softness that uh, that you've uh, articulated, that we are moving in the right direction in South Africa? And, and if that is the case, what's the road ahead looking like? How long do we still have before normality will return and before criminals will fear the criminal justice system? Yeah, I think it, it, it might be a year or two still. Um, you know, I mean, when you get, you know, I, I, I'm a businessman. I'm involved in different areas of business and I also have and own a forensic practice. And I look at my staff who are qualified lawyers and certified fraud examiners. And I look at them when they go to the police station to open a criminal docket where they have a lever arch file, which sets out quite succinctly how somebody has stolen a hundred million rand. And the cop on the other side of the counter at the police station uh, without understanding what he's looking at, states, no, that's a civil matter, you can't open a criminal case. And it's that mentality, that complete lack of service within the South African police service. I think what has to happen is the chief of police has to issue an instruction that any police official refusing to open a docket must be suspended without pay because we don't have confidence in the criminal justice system. And the reason we don't have that, I dealt with a case, we were contacted last week by somebody who'd been badly assaulted. 
and went into a police station, dripping blood on the floor, and he was chased out of the police station because he was making a mess on the floor. Yeah. Now, when you've got that lack of empathy and lack of ability by police officers to do their job, you're not going to have confidence in the criminal justice system. So the starting place has to be the visible face of the criminal justice system, which to the man in the street is your police station or your guys that are patrolling, uh, doing their area patrols or responding to crimes in progress. Now, until that has improved drastically, which it won't do while you've got criminals in the police service, um, until it's improved, I'm afraid there's always going to be a lack of, of, of um, hope that things are starting to improve. What we do whenever somebody refuses to open a docket, we say, okay, call the station commander. We're going to wait here, call the station commander. When they say, no, he's not here, say, that's fine. Then give me his telephone number. People need to start being tougher in this approach. If the police open a docket and they later find that it's not been set out properly or there's no case to answer, they can close the docket. But to flatly refuse to open dockets when a person comes into a police station to report a crime is completely unacceptable and it's unconstitutional. Paula Sullivan, as always, giving it straight from the heart and uh, giving us some uh, good insights there. A couple of years yet before things start normalizing, but we are moving in the right direction. And as long as we've got people like Paul who are doing their bit as at Forensics for Justice, well, then we can be looking forward with uh, with some hope, I guess. Uh, just to remind you that uh, if you if you like what Paul does, and many of us do, and unfortunately, he's he's also Forensics for Justice also needs to to be funded. Uh, if you feel like finding a worthy cause, just go online, look at ForensicsforJustice.org. Uh, and that's a very easy way to support him. I, I hope you consider that as an option. It's uh, been our privilege and pleasure once again to be of service to you today. I see Bruce uh, sent a email where he said that a business moderated discussion between Nick and Alan, Nick Hudson and Alan Whiteside would be really useful to business subscribers. Uh, Alan should provide justification for his disparaging dismissals of the Great Barrington Declaration and its eminent and respected authors. Well, uh, we'll ask and uh, let's see. Perhaps we'll get them on uh, this time next week. Always uh, on a Monday at noon, we have Rational Radio. Usually we focus on investment only. I just thought it was a good idea this week with some other big issues that are happening uh, to bring in uh, Nick Hudson and Paul O'Sullivan and, and uh, judging by the number of people who were on the webinar and of course this is only premium subscribers and who stayed with us all the way through I can see that you enjoyed it as well well look forward to being back in your company again next week uh, I'll let you know if we can get the two of them on to debate that issue should be lots of fun until the next time from me Alec Hogg and our team at Biz News um, we wish you a very very good week ahead Thank you for joining us for this webinar, which is compiled and produced 
by the team at biznews.com. A recording of this webinar will be available later today on the biznews.com channel on YouTube. From our team, until the next time, cheerio.